Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Just drove the kid over the railing into the water. When I saw him discard the over the side of the bridge, my immediate concern was, please let me see her in the water. He's fleeing, he's fleeing south towards the Skyway Tool Plaza. Kids in the water, I don't see him. Following breaking news this morning from overnight, just, just a heartbreaking story. A five-year-old girl died overnight after being stolen. Sometimes I do ask God, I said, why, 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 why? I was happy. Why did you take her? Or why did you let him take her? Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at the Times. This week, as with last week's podcast, students from Ohio University are the ones asking the questions. Lane was recently at OU to participate in an annual lecture series called On Writing Well, sponsored by the E.W. Scripps School of Journalism. The student moderator you'll hear asking the initial questions is Marianne Dodson. Audience questions were sometimes muffled, so in those instances, we've gone straight to Lane's answers, where it's clear what the questions were. The topic for this podcast is The Long Fall of Phoebe Johnchuck a project published in 2016. The story is heartbreaking about a father who threw his young daughter from a bridge and the missed opportunities that might have kept him from doing her harm. The long fall of Phoebe Johnshuck. Um, This story is huge, both in one, it's long, and two, it covers a lot of ground. Um, And as I was reading, I was really, it felt like every new section, there was just so much more unveiled. And I feel like the beginning, I had like this good idea of what the story was going to be about, but it's so much more than just Phoebe's death. Um, It's so much that led up to it, so many flaws in the system. Um, So what did you initially know? Because I know this was you obviously, it was a newsworthy event. What did you initially know going into the story? Um, and as you started to peel back those layers, what was your reaction to how many different parts were like uncovered? So I'll try to answer that question, but I have to give a little bit of background. Mm-hmm. So Phoebe died in January, and I didn't get assigned that story till June. So by the time she had I mean, by the time I got the story, then there had been 71 other stories just in Florida written about her or brought TV broadcasts about her. So the news had been covered out the yin-yang. You know, everybody in Florida, and I had friends in Ohio who were like, oh, my God, the girl who got dropped off the bridge. You know, people knew the story already. Mm-hmm. Um, so when my editor told me she didn't want me to write a story about Phoebe, I was like, nope, I'm not going to do that. It's already been done. What else am I going to say? It's mm-hmm. been done to death. It's horribly tragic. I really don't want to like dive into that world. And no, mm-hmm. 
And so then they had the managing editor come and take me out to lunch, and the managing editor's like, no, we really think this needs a little breakout. We need to figure out who Phoebe was and how this could happen to her. And I'm like, mm-mm, no. I, I mean, I've been a reporter now at the paper for 18 years. I've only said no to one other story ever, ever, ever. And I was like, no, I don't want to do that story. There's no hope in that story. What's it possibly going to change for anybody? I couldn't figure out the good that could come of it. Mm-hmm. So I was like, no. And then the very next day, the publisher of the paper, who never took me out to lunch ever, not even when I won the Pulitzer Prize, <laughs> takes me out to lunch and he's like, I'm going to need you to do this for me. Paul, like, can you not say no to Paul? And he's like, I'm going to need you to do this for me. And I'm like, oh, shit. Like, <laughs> now I can't get out of it, you know? Yeah. So I spent the rest of the lunch kind of interviewing him about, like, why? Why do you want the story so badly? What is it you want me to do with this story? What, what can I do with this story that those other 71 reporters haven't already done? Mm-hmm. You know? And, um... His pitch basically was what it became my pitch to the um, family members was like, mm-hmm. everyone knows this is the little girl who got dropped off the bridge. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows who Phoebe was. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows what this little girl's life was like, you know. And so let's give her the dignity of, of telling what her life was like. And in that process, figuring out how this could have possibly happened, mm-hmm. you know. So <coughs> we set out. I think we had all the police reports. Uh, we had a lot of the initial um, interrogation of John Chuck from that night on video. Um, so we had a, like a big box of stuff to start out with before I even started doing my own reporting. We had all the stuff the police reporter had done. And, mm-hmm. you know, and um, wh- I worked with a photographer, Cherie Diaz, at the time. And she's a wonderful photojournalist, not, not just a photographer. And so she and I sat together and made a list of 100 people we wanted to interview. Mm-hmm. Our very first sit-down was like, okay, there's the, here's the top 100 people we want to talk to for this story, you know. Um, and then kind of branching out from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I knew part of it was going to be um, the system because mm-hmm. I knew the 911 calls had come in and nothing happened. Mm-hmm. I knew part of it was going to be um, her family, because why was her dad, her single dad, raising her when her mom was still there and the mm-hmm. grandmother was still there? And So like, we kind of knew those pieces might be part of it, but we didn't have any idea about the, the dysfunction and the drug use and mm-hmm. all of that stuff until we started kind of getting into it. Yeah. And who were the first family members that you spoke to? So, okay, so this is like reporter gold. So the fir- after we made our, our list of 100 people, mm-hmm. we were like, who do we need to get to first? Like, who are you going to prioritize first, mm-hmm. you know? And I knew that one of the people I needed, really needed to talk to was her kindergarten teacher. Because mm-hmm. I kept thinking about, like, this is a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. She comes back to school. You know, she goes to school with these little kids, and then all of a sudden she's not in school. And then what does a five-year-old think? Everybody saw her dad drop her off the bridge on the TV, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the kindergarten teacher had a four-year-old herself. So I was like, I, I, I need the kindergarten teacher. But I got the assignment on June the 1st, and kindergarten was over on June the 5th. School mm-hmm. was out, and I was like, holy cow. So that's, like, I totally started on the kindergarten teacher. Because uh-huh. like, I knew... You know, once school was out, the classroom wasn't going to look the same. Mm-hmm. I wanted to see her cubby. I wanted to see her beanbag. I wanted to see where she sat, you know, and her finger paints and what the classroom looked like. And I didn't want that to change over the summer. Mm-hmm. So I, I probably would have started with her grandma, mm-hmm. to tell you the truth, at the beginning. But I thought, I need to get the kindergarten teacher while I can. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got the kindergarten teacher in her classroom on, like, a Monday or Tuesday, maybe. And um, she said, well, you know, on the last day of school, we're going to have this reading garden dedication and all the little kids are going to bring their favorite book that they like to read and they made these stepping stones for Phoebe and we're going to build a little garden behind the kindergarten wing 
And I was like, okay, yes. Because <laughs> now I have a scene. I've got something to go to. And all her family was coming to the kindergarten, mm. reading garden dedication. So instead of me having a cold call, aunts and uncles and stepdads and cousins, it was like they were all there. Mm -hmm. You know, they were all there to celebrate this I guess a positive memorial thing for her. And that was know. the first time you met them? Yeah, and so the kindergarten teacher was, I mean, it, this probably happens with you guys too. Once you get in with somebody, mm -hmm. you can get them to sort of like introduce, introduce you. you around. It was mm -hmm. so helpful. So she introduced me to the family members there, and then a couple of them took the stepping stones and walked across the street to the cemetery mm -hmm. and planted the stepping stones in the cemetery. So then I got to go with the family to the graveyard, mm -hmm. you know, which was pretty awesome but it was so much better to meet them there in person and I ended up convincing my editor like let me write a little daily about mm -hmm. the garden so I wrote like a, a 12 inch you know maybe a thousand word story about this very positive and light and little kids and this memorable garden and the family loved that story mm -hmm. so I think that helped yeah so were they hesitant helped. at all to talk to you at the beginning oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. in fact um, we never got the John John Chuck's dad he would mm -hmm. never, ever talk to us. He was mm -hmm. the one missing link, um, mm -hmm. even though he was there that day. And there was a lot of um, allegations that he was abusive. Mm -hmm. So I have a feeling that that was one reason he, he didn't want to talk to us, you know. Yeah. But the grandmother didn't want to talk to us, didn't want to talk to us, didn't want to talk to us. And Phoebe had been living with her. Mm -hmm. um, so we kind of knew we had to get her. And finally, mm -hmm. I said to the kindergarten teacher who had been close to the grandma, I'm like, can you, can you help us talk to the grandma? And mm -hmm. she said, she called me back and she was like, she doesn't want you guys to come to her house. And I was like, okay, we don't have to come to her house. Like, I knew I was going to get to her house eventually, and we did. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> but at that moment in time, we ended up renting a room at like a Holiday Inn and uh -huh. met the teacher, and the grandmother wanted a sidekick. Mm -hmm. So the teacher and the grandmother and I and the photographer did the first interview there mm -hmm. at the Holiday Inn. How long did it take you to get into her house? A month, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just had to keep telling her we really wanted to see where Phoebe lived. We wanted mm -hmm. to see Phoebe's room. We wanted to see Phoebe. And she mm -hmm. ended up trusting us after a little while. What do you while, think made her change her mind? I think because she started to trust us. Yeah. You know, we, we started stopping by and, and mm -hmm. spending time. And we talked to 50 other people. And mm -hmm. it was kind of like, this is another thing. Like, I, when I was your all's age, I always wanted my person all to myself. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm going to do an interview with Patty, I don't want anybody else around there because I want her whole attention. Mm -hmm. But now when people are like, oh, can I bring my roommate, my boyfriend, my dog, my grandma? I'm like, sure, bring them along. You know, like people need wingmen. And it sort of helps a lot of times to make people relax. And the kindergarten teacher and I talked for probably almost an hour before the grandma would chime in, you know. But I needed her to be my door. Right. So the first section um, and the lead of the story, it, it, there's a lot of a lot of sentences leading up to the final two in the first section, which are really like really the lead and the punch of the story, which is Phoebe's dad held her out over the guardrail six stories above the black waves and let go. Um, but there are several sentences, like 150 words leading up to that. How do you know when you know that those two sentences are the ones that are going to make the impact and the punch? How, how do you know how much to include beforehand to still keep readers interested? Yeah, that was a big challenge of this story because I think everybody already knew what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. If I was the first one to report it, I would have written it terribly differently, you mm -hmm. know, entirely differently. I would never have, like, let on that that's what happened. I would have built the story to the bridge, mm -hmm. you know. But this one I felt like that would be kind of um, not fair to the readers because mm -hmm. I, I had to admit that they already knew what was going to happen. So I felt like, oh, i got to get out there. I got to get out there quick, mm -hmm. you know, that yes, yes, people, this is the kid that got dropped off the bridge, you know, mm -hmm. just to kind of put a nod to that. Um, 
the managing editor at the time actually wanted me to stop when he walked away from the bridge. He was like, what if we just started the whole story when John Chuck like walked away from the bridge? Mm. And I tried that and I thought mm. about it and it just, I couldn't make it work, you know, mm -hmm. but that's where he wanted it to start. Mm -hmm. um, so we kind of went back and forth a lot about that. And then I went and talked to a class at Indiana University when I was writing this story. Mm -hmm. And one of the students in a room just like this was like, oh my God, that sounds just like Chronicle of a Death Foretold. We just read this Gabriel Garcia Marquez story in my English class. And I was like, it is just like Gabriel Garcia Marquez. So that whole idea of like telling the ending almost yeah. at the beginning and then backing up, that came from a wonderful smart student. Definitely. Did you read all of those 71 other stories that had been written about it? Yes, and watched all the TV broadcasts. Yeah. And, yeah. How much do you think that influenced, obviously, what other people, you don't want to report what other people have reported, but what did you take from, from reading all of those stories and seeing how much it was covered? That no one had tried to figure out what was going on with John John Chuck. Yeah. You know, it was, it was all taken from the moment of the, the 911 call, um, and why didn't the police react? It mm -hmm. wasn't. Okay, for five years, this little girl's life has been basically hell, mm -hmm. you know, and nobody had kind of... I think one of the, uh, the, one of the aha moments of that came when we were looking up all the addresses <laughs> he'd lived at, mm -hmm. you know, and I think yeah. there were 15 or 16 houses that he dragged this little girl mm -hmm. to in the first five years of her life, and that was like, okay, we got to explore, like, how she lived, not mm -hmm. just how she died, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, I thought one of the most like impactful visual aids in the story was when you had all those photographs of like this is where she like learned to ride a bike or like this is where she did little things. This is where she took her first steps. Um, was that your idea to to include that photo your photographer's idea? How much? How, what did you talk about? That? I, I wanted to go see each of the houses just so I could see like where she was growing up, and the photographer was like, oh, no, we need to chronicle this. So mm -hmm. she started taking pictures of all of the residences. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. No, even just that, like, straight-on shot of all of those. I thought it was very well done. And the one, uh, I don't know if you guys remember, there was that one beautiful little purple Victorian house that mm -hmm. looked like a dollhouse. Yeah. Like, in the midst of all the slums and little one-room apartments and cracker shacks, then she moves in with these rich uncles who have this mansion on the hill, and it's like, there were people who could have saved her, you know? Mm -hmm. There was means in the family. There, there, were, there were glimmers of hope that just didn't, you know, pan out for her. Like, yeah. So this story does kind of read, um, for a lot of it, kind of like a history of John John Chuck. Um, and there are a lot of, lot of specific details and anecdotes about his life. Um, and one of the conversations uh, where he's quoted that really struck me was the conversation with Michelle when they were, um, like right before they became an item. Um, and he says, maybe I'm not gay because I'm in love with you. And that really struck me as being such a personal thing to say, let alone to relay to a reporter. So what was that conversation like when you got those details, um, and how long did it take for, for them to open up to you in that way? That was a big bonus from these two uncles. Mm -hmm. so, so Phoebe lived with her grandmother, and her grandmother had a brother who had a partner, and they were the rich ones. They were the ones in the family. Like, everybody in that family had arrest reports except these two uncles, <laughs> and everybody was living in poverty except these two uncles. And mm -hmm. we went to interview them in this penthouse in downtown Tampa, and it was gorgeous, and, and they were very, they were like the kind of guys who like dress their dogs for every, you know, holiday and like had these little portraits around the house and stuff. And, and the first thing they said was, well, we didn't ever think he would be a father because he was just gay from the time he was little. And we were like, oh, we'd never heard that from anybody, you know, like the uh -huh. two gay uncles were the ones that kind of open up about uh -huh. this. And then it kind of took on a, a different turn to us in a way of like who he was mm -hmm. and what he was doing. Um, 
and and then when we finally got the mother to talk, Michelle to talk mm-hmm. to us, the the birth mother. You know, she was all about confirming that too. Yeah. So it was it was I don't know that it meant anything one way or the other, but it was interesting insight. Mm-hmm. You know, and was Michelle the one who relayed that conversation? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And was she what, what was what was she like in terms of? agreeing to talk to you and opening up to you. So that's a great little narrative. Okay, so she wouldn't talk to us. We couldn't find her. She's just off the grid on living on disability, whatever. And one of the women who John had lived with, with Phoebe, said, oh, well, she's going out with this guy now who's a bartender at this bar. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay. So I I called the bar, and uh, I talked to the bartender, and he's like, yeah, I'm dating her. She's not going to talk to you. You know, just leave her alone. This is too painful. You know, Mm -hmm. she's been through a lot. She's very fragile. She's sick. She's, you know, she's got MS. Just leave her alone. And I'm like, okay, well, I really feel like we need to talk to Phoebe's mother. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm doing this huge, big story. I talked to, like, 27 people by then. I'm like, we really need to talk to the mother. And he's like, no, stop bothering her. And he hung up. And so I said, Cherie and I were driving around to another, we were going to go interview somebody else. And I was like, oh, we need to go to that bar. Mm-hmm. And she was like, really? I'm like, yeah, it's, he's there now. It's 3 o'clock. Let's go to the bar. So we went to the bar and ordered a couple drinks and sat there and chatted up the bartender. And all of a sudden, then by about the third drink, you know, we were like, oh, by the way, <laughs> I talked to you on the phone earlier today. Like, <laughs> I'm that reporter person. And he was like, oh, shit, you know. <laughs> and, and then about 10 minutes later, in comes this beautiful young blonde woman from the back of the bar who I knew from the photographs was Phoebe's mom. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, hey, can I buy you a drink? And it was like, we ended up hanging out at the bar for about two hours with her after that and then mm-hmm. said, I want to come over and talk to you tomorrow. And she was like, okay, can you bring a six pack? You know? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> sure. Nice. So yeah, she led us over to her house after that. But it was basically like, you know, I, I know the bartender's there. I know I need to talk to the bartender, so let's go to the bar. You know, mm-hmm. like, just don't take no for an answer, I guess. Yeah. She really should bring us six. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and did you? And we did, yes. Nice. Um, so, as I've said, a lot of layers in this story. Um, and one of the things that really struck me when you first mentioned it that I was shocked about was the Swedish Bible and that religious narrative. And when you first mentioned it, like, I was like, why is she bringing up this Bible? And when you, you have, like, the picture of the Bible, and I was like, why is there this random photo of a Bible? I was, like, questioning it. Um, but then, like, in the next section, the religious narrative and and his like perspective becomes so much more important. Um, when you, f- how did you first find out about who 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 like told you about um, the Bible and his his kind of religious awakening? And what was your reaction when you heard that? We actually saw the Bible in the evidence photos, oh. and we were both like, "What?" <laughs> you know, it was huge. I mean, uh-huh. huge and in Swedish and old, and so we had no idea why that was in evidence photos or what mm-hmm. the relevance of that was whatsoever. And and we start flipping through. Um, other evidence photos, and Cherie actually ended up, the photographer, there was a picture of all this trash in the car. The, tr- the car was trashed, you know, <laughs> like someone who lives in their car type of thing. And she, she said, oh, there's another Bible on the passenger seat on the floor. And I said, well, why does he have all these Bibles? Mm-hmm. So she starts zooming in on it, and we saw the verse that it was open to, which mm-hmm. was basically like eerily chilling about... Mm-hmm making a sacrifice to the Lord and right. all this devils and demons. And we were like, oh, that can't be coincidental that the Bible was open to that. For I couldn't have ever told what it said if, if Sheree hadn't, like, you know, super zoomed in for me to see on it on her photograph. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when we talked to the lawyer who he had come to see, um, he brought the Bible. Mm-hmm. She sort of explained what was going on with that, that mm-hmm. he thought he was God and he thought she was God. And the family was really confused by the whole religiosity because he'd mm-hmm. never, ever been religious. Right. Um, 
And then the part, I think it was from a police report where it talked about him um, sprinkling salt around the doorways mm -hmm. to keep the demons out, you know? And I right. thought, so we did a little bit of research about that. What does that look like? And yeah. Right. Um, and did, because that doesn't really come into play until a little bit later, at least halfway through the story. Um, did you ever have any trouble when you were writing it, making, like introducing that and making that fit? Did, like as you were writing, did you have any issues? No, I kind of, I mean, I saved, I, I knew I wanted to save the last part to just be that chronology of that one day. Mm -hmm. So I figured that it would be easy transition to bringing the lawyer who sees the Bible and then the, one of the last people he goes to are the priests mm -hmm. who basically he's asking them to save him. And I thought, mm -hmm. okay, the priests were totally unhelpful <laughs> to me. Didn't want to talk about it at all, but it, was, it made a, a good transition to get into that idea of like he's begging to be saved or exercised or something at that ending, mm -hmm. you know. So once you started reporting, did any of those doubts that you had at the beginning when you kept rejecting the story, did any of those resurface? And, or did you always kind of feel like, no, now I'm on to something? That's a good question. I, I mean, I felt like I liked the story better once I got into it. And I think the part for me that I realized like I had something other people didn't have was when I started hearing about the meth use and mm -hmm. these times in the past where he would like drive 100 miles an hour with his friends in the car and mm -hmm. it wasn't like... This wasn't a one-time thing. This was a pattern. This mm -hmm. guy was going through, and, and, and maybe it wasn't a mental illness. Maybe it was a drug-induced something or other, you mm -hmm. know? And so that, I think, changed for me that, okay, I can bring our readers something new to this story mm -hmm. and explain to them something that hasn't already been, you know, reported or wasn't in the police reports type of a thing. Mm -hmm. um, and since and you knew going into it, this was a very tragic story, um, and I'm sure throughout the process it was very draining. How how did you kind of handle being so close with all of these people who were so deeply affected by it? And, and how much per day did you spend kind of, like, did you disassociate from the story at all? Um, or were you just kind of constantly thinking about it during that process? What an insightful question. People, I don't think people spend much time thinking about how reporting stories takes a toll on the journalists, you know, and I, I hope you guys are cognizant of that in your own lives when you go through it because it's like being a, a trauma doctor or something sometimes or a soldier. I mean, you get dumped in these horrible tragedies and you're supposed to not only take it all in but make sense of it for other people and that's mm -hmm. like a, it's a big emotional burden, you know, and, and the other side of that. Um, I think one of the reasons it was so hard for me was because I, I started reporting in June, right when my younger son was graduating from high school, and I finished the reporting up through September when he left. So I'm going, I don't know if your parents have gone through this or shared this, but I went through this horrible like empty nesting thing, like, oh, my children are gone, they're away at college, who am I, my house is empty, it's quiet. And so going through that at the same time of writing about a guy who just threw his kid off the bridge mm -hmm. was emotionally devastating yeah. and and I still I don't know if I'm allowed to cuss in here but I still okay. I still kept saying throughout the whole thing like there's no hope in this story there's no, it's not a, there's not a chance that it's gonna fix anything or change anything or mm -hmm. make anything better you know and the managing editor sent me this postcard in the mail that said fuck hope <laughs> get back to your story and stop whining like, you know and so I have that on my desk still but um yeah, I, I just couldn't figure out how it would, other than adding the value of, of how did this happen, mm -hmm. how it would change anything for the better, you right. know? So I, I still don't know that it did, but. Well, it's beautifully written. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, and it does honor Phoebe, so. It did. That, that was the one thing at least people knew who she was mm -hmm. and, and, like, could remember her as a, as a person, not mm -hmm. just a, a tragic right. roadside memorial, you know? Right. 
Um, so you mentioned the 100 characters who you people to interview that you had. So twofold, how many people did you not get to or who, who maybe did you not get to that you really wanted to? I know you mentioned his father. Um, and also what characters that made it, were there any characters who made it into the story who you originally had no idea about? Yeah, so of the 100 people, I think we ended up reaching out to about 80 of them and we got about 70, no, maybe 60 of them. Um, 52 people we interviewed in person. Mm -hmm. So the other people were on the phone or Skype or whatever, but we actually physically sat face in face with about 52 people for that story. And I didn't know from the beginning how many people that Phoebe and John had lived with. So all of a sudden there became this whole litany of I think six other single moms that had taken them in and they didn't really like John all that much, but they felt sorry for Phoebe mm -hmm. and they wanted to help her. So I had all these other six mom characters that could give me, you know, this number of months that they were at my house and this number of months that they were at my house and oh he broke this bed in a rage over here and oh he came home so drunk he peed on the floor over here and you know they could feel in all these other details about his fatherhood mm -hmm. um, that weren't reported anywhere that, that nobody knew of so then then I went through that thing that we were like I had six great single mom standing characters mm -hmm. and I wanted to write about them all <laughs> and I remember the woman who edited it Kelly Venom was like oh, no, 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 we don't need more than two of those extraneous <laughs> other moms, you know, so that I had to go kill four of them in the midst of uh -huh. the reporting process, you know. But it was like I needed to talk to them all, and I needed them to um, reaffirm what each other was saying, that mm -hmm. it wasn't just a one-time thing, you know, mm -hmm. shore each other's stories up, but I think I only quoted two of them in the end of that. When I was reading, I definitely felt like the saddest part for me was um, when it's being retold, the, the people – the girl and then the boy who went out into the boat after her bought that night. Um, and you have like the girl's picture. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Who was a college student, um, but you didn't use any like direct quotes from her, I don't think. Um, was there like a reason for that? And what, what was it like talking to her who had someone who had been through something so traumatizing but is still kind of distant from the situation. Yeah, I, I felt from the beginning, because I told you my kids are the same age as you guys, and I felt when, when I read that, like, oh, my God, how awful for these poor kids. Like, they're on this, Eckerd College has the only student-run search and rescue group mm -hmm. in the whole country. Mm -hmm. And normally they're like, you know, oh, go take some gas to the fishermen who ran <laughs> out of gas. You know, or oh, these people's canoe capsized. Like, go help them. And, and then all of a sudden they're dispatched to find a five-year-old's body, mm -hmm. you know. So I knew I wanted to talk to them. Um, and I also knew that I wanted to get out there and see what it looked like from their perspective late at night under the bridge. Mm -hmm. So I called the guy, um, the public information guy from the college, and I said, hey, can you get me on a boat? Can, can you help, talk me to the, help me talk to these kids? And they didn't want to talk to me. None of them mm -hmm. wanted to talk to me. And he was like, oh, we'll get you some of the, but he also take you out on the boat, whatever. And I was like, no, 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 I want to go with those kids, you know. Mm -hmm. And then the, the weirdest thing happened was the kids on the search and rescue group, and there's a, a group uh, in, right on the other side of the bridge from where their college is mm -hmm. that uh, 
trains guide dogs for blind people. Mm-hmm. And these kids had gotten together and raised money to sponsor a guide dog mm-hmm. and named it Phoebe. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden they were like, well, can we talk about our guide dog that we adopted to honor Phoebe? And I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> can I come right on your boat? You know, so yeah. it's kind of like they had something they wanted to share that I was able to parlay into, come on, take me out with you guys, you know. Gotcha. But she cried through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And, and she didn't want to be quoted. And I said, I... I don't have to quote you, but I want to know what that was like, mm-hmm. you know. So that was kind of what that decision was. Right. was like. And then I think I called her um, later in the summer when she'd gone back home again. I called her and talked to her at home. Mm-hmm. Was um, it hard for you writing that section, the narration? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was hard to write because it was so emotional, but mm-hmm. it was easy to write because I was there. Mm-hmm. You know, I had this narrative. I could tell you what it smelled like. I could tell you where the buoys were. I could tell you what the light looked off look like coming off of the side of the bridge you know so mm-hmm. like being immersed in that scene was made it so much easier to narrate it you yeah know? definitely um what was the reaction from the family like after your story did they read it because uh, there's a lot of news about it no that's a great question and i i still don't think the grandmothers read it oh. the grandmother called us and she loved it oh she loved it she went on and on about the pictures and she went on and on about the quotes and oh, you even made me look beautiful. And she loved the last picture of her holding the doll. You know, mm-hmm. she she was kind of I thought it was kind of creepy, but she tucked <laughs> this baby doll into bed, like just like she'd done yeah. with Phoebe. And oh, I love that you got the baby doll in there and everything. Didn't say one word about the story or what mm-hmm. it said. And uh, I said, Have you gotten a chance to read it? And she's like, Oh no, no, not the whole thing. You know, and and we saw her. Two more times after that, because there was one that was a fundraiser, like a, a bike ride fundraiser mm-hmm. thing for her, and there was another thing when they dedicated, I forgot it was something else. Oh, uh, they put a marker at the bridge. And so I saw her again twice, and mm-hmm. then she still hadn't read the story, which wow. is like, a, I don't know, I had to get over myself. <laughs> like, it's better than her re- reading and hating it, I guess. Right, right. right. The uncles were really, really kind. They, yeah. they called me and thanked me and asked for more copies. And the kindergarten teacher, I'm still friends with her on Facebook. Mm-hmm. She and I really bonded during that story. Yeah. Do you think that this is the kind of story that you would ever go back to in any sort of follow-up with the family members? No, but I want him to come to trial. That, dude, that man is still sitting in a mental institute. I, I shouldn't say. I, people are trying to determine whether he's competent to stand trial or not. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I want to follow it when he comes to trial. That's my next piece of it. Like, dude, you've just sat there doing crossword puzzles for the past two years. And the other thing we found out about him was, you know, Florida's got great open record laws. Like, I don't know what Ohio is like, but we've got great open record laws. And so all of these, uh, you know, times that he had called the police and done domestic violence injunctions and gone to court, those all, we had all those records. Mm -hmm. So we knew this dude knew how to work the court system and Mm -hmm. the legal system. And here he is getting off as being mentally incompetent for murdering his daughter Mm -hmm. when... There was no signs of mental incompetence until that very last day where he, I don't know if that was real or not. Um, so there are a lot of characters in this story, and I think you do a really good job of capturing all of their individual voices um, while also keeping your own voice very present throughout the story. So do you think that capturing someone else's voice as a character or capturing your own voice as a writer is more difficult? Great question. And I think you can't unbraid those two. You know, mm-hmm. I think... When I was a young writer, I was really trying hard to find my voice. You know, what does is, what is my voice sound like in the midst of all this? And uh, if you guys ever read my college stories, it sounds like a 
bunch of jargon, you know, academician, like, I'm so <laughs> smart, look at me, you know, it, it wasn't writerly, it wasn't beautiful, it wasn't even accessible, a lot of it was just like, well, I'm going to report what the board reported in these great, you know, intellectual sentences. So I didn't have a voice mm -hmm. as a writer. And um, when I switched from doing news to doing features, I was really struggling with that, like, mm -hmm. who am I going to sound like, you know, and um, I ended up kind of deciding I didn't know who I was, like my voice as a writer. So maybe the best I could do was like find the voice of the person I was writing about mm -hmm. and sort of like use that as a fallback, you mm -hmm. know? And it became so freeing. Mm -hmm. Like I I don't need to impose my voice on you guys. If I'm writing about a school teacher, I can sound like the school teacher. If I'm writing about a grandmother, I can sound like the grandmother. If I'm writing about a cop, hey, I'm gonna sound like a cop for a few <laughs> paragraphs here, you know? And, and kind of let their voices carry that. Mm -hmm. um, and somewhere in the mix of that, I hope my own voice emerged, you know? But it's, it's really a hard thing, and I think the more you think about, like, forcing what your voice is as a writer, the harder it is to find it, Yeah. you know? Because it's that super delicate balance, mm -hmm. like, I always think about the Beatles, right? Like, like I want to hold your hand is so different from I am the walrus, but you know it's the Beatles. You know, it has like a sound that you know it's them, but none of their songs sound the same. And I mm -hmm. think that's what I want to be as a writer. Like, <laughs> I want people to know like, oh my God, I knew it was Elaine de Gregory story before I even read the third paragraph, but I sure don't want them to all sound the same. Yeah. You know what I mean? So by trying to cop my character's voices, I think is what helped me find my own. Gotcha. Okay, now we are going to shift to audience questions. So um, you got assigned a story in June, and then you said you finished the reporting process in September, and then it was published in January. So this is a story that you said you, know, you sat down with 100 characters uh, that you wanted to talk to. How do you know when you're done reporting? It's, you can always <laughs> find something else for a story like this. Yes, I needed the editor to go, I need a draft by Thursday, Lane, stop, <laughs> you know? And I was like, no, I have 27 people left I haven't talked to. She's like, no, just stop, you know? And, and while she was editing, I was, still reporting you know I was still like f filling in my own blanks while she was doing that but I, I, I need someone to tell me to stop I'm never gonna stop like <laughs> if it's a daily story and it's due at five o'clock I'm gonna report till like 4:43. you know like and then be like ah panic you know so I, I definitely need someone to like pull the plug on me cool. uh, <laughs> I, I might have the person wrong here but I think when John Chuck went for questioning you you said he looked like uh, Jim Belushi on a bender or something like that. So I, I was just wondering for a story that is as heavy as this one is in terms of the subject matter, how do you know when to, to mix in something that's a little bit quirkier, a little bit lighter for the reader? Yeah, and I, I suck at metaphors and similes. I mean, I write them all the time, and then I take them out, or the editor takes them out because they suck. So I'm not very good at that at all. And I think I was watching that video with the, edit, the woman who edited me. Um, we watched it together, and I was like, oh, my God, look at that guy. He looks like John Belushi on a bender. And she's like, oh, write that down. You know, like, it wasn't something as a writer that came to my head at all. It was just me watching this guy and being like, holy cow, you know. Because if I, if I sat down to write that as a metaphor, it wouldn't have come out like that. But it, it also, you know, I, I, I didn't want to be lighthearted about it at all, but I wanted to be able to picture him, you know, and he... He, to me, looked so evil, like in every single thing that I, I mean, I'm sure I'm projecting that too, but he just looked really evil. Mm -hmm. So to have that moment where he just looked like completely disheveled, like he didn't know what was going on, I felt like it humanized him a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want you to feel sorry for him at all, but I want you to be able to, to picture him in this moment of crisis, you know. Um, yeah, you, you talk about uncovering you know, John Johnchuk and just his background, but I guess what was it like hearing from people you know, saying, like, how they knew so much about him, but, like, kind of, like, near the end, 
like they really didn't know too much, I guess. What were you thinking during that whole process? I was I was wondering how all of the police and the domestic violence injunctions and all these things had been reported and nobody had gone even to the step that I had to report what was really going on in that family, you know? Like it, it felt to me like I only worked on it for, you know, a few months and I was able to unravel all of the stuff that someone should have noticed a lot earlier or more along the way, you know, and that that was frustrating because it felt like, who's paying attention here, you know? Um, and even the family, the family knew he was bouncing her from house to house and relative to relative and no one was like taking ownership because they were scared of him. That was the other part I got, like his family was really scared of him um, and didn't want to make him mad. So. They were a lot more hands-off than they should have been, you know. The saddest part to me was the grandma when she didn't keep her that night. Like, he came to get her in the middle of the night, and the grandma knew something bad was going on but didn't want him to beat her up because he, he'd beat her up before his own mother. You know, it's like, ugh. Even his mom's terrified of him. Uh, red shirt. Yes. <laughs> um, you talked about it earlier. It's like the you know, short sentences with all the like, bunch of, you know, leading up to it. And it said she only had 13 hours to live, and I thought that, like, that, like, stood out to me throughout the entire, that was, like, the one sentence that I could, like, tell you, like, after reading it four hours ago. So, you know, how do you decide whether to, when to be so abrupt and, you know, so impactful? I'm, I'm always looking for ways to signpost things for the readers. Um, and I write a lot of short sentences, probably too many short sentences. <laughs> I hope my mother doesn't listen to this podcast, but my mother is a writer who writes in like nine clauses, like it takes to get, you know, before you get to the subject verb, you're like 17 commas later, and you're like, oh. so I think I like overreact the other direction to like really like, let me write some machine gun fire sentences right here, you know, but I think the short ones are the most powerful a lot of times, you know, um, and so I wanted to say to the readers like, okay, this is the day this is going to happen. I wanted to make you stop just for a minute and go, okay, I've given you all this other detritus leading up to this. Now's the point where you got to pay attention because she's going to die, you know, like really, really soon. You know, One of my first editors, he, he had this um, great saying. He would go, the most important sentence in the English language is only two words, Jesus wept. And he's like, that is the most powerful and perfect sentence ever. And so I, I always try to think of like, how few words can you use to make your biggest punch, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so do you think that like the delayed timing of this feature compared to when it happened, like allowed the, the, the people that you're talking to to kind of like calm down a little bit, especially people related and examine it in more of a critical light? Yes, definitely. And, and I think that's something that I didn't take into consideration much when I was doing news stories, that a lot of times it is so much easier to come back if not weeks, months later, when people are, are more able to talk about it or their, their guilt has been assuaged a little bit or they've gotten a chance to mourn, you know. Um, and this is a line I use, not a line, it's true, but something I say, like, all of you guys, if you're going to go into news reporting, you're going to have to cover somebody dying in an awful accident or an awful shooting or some horribly unexpected death at one point in time. And you're going to have to go knock on the door of the parents or the grandparents or the husband or the kids and go, how did it feel when Samantha died? And that's the worst freaking part of being a news reporter. That's the part you never gets easy. You never want to do that. But if you can turn that into a chance for those people to keep that person alive, 
That's what I'll usually mm-hmm. say. Like, if I know you don't want to talk about, you know, your, your kid who just got killed right now, but if you don't, he's going to be another statistic. And if you do, we can all remember who Frankie was and how he liked playing with Power Rangers and, <laughs> you know, give them something to, why should they talk to you? Well, the reason they want to talk to you is because they want to humanize their person who they lost, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think, yes, I think a lot of the people, you know, these initial 72 stories, the uncles didn't talk to anybody, the grandma didn't talk to anybody, the kindergarten didn't talk, teacher didn't talk to anybody. So it was a huge bonus rather than a detriment to be able to go back months later. And, and they've gotten a lot of that horror out of their system by then, you know, and they're trying to make sense of it. And so then that's when it helps you, I think. You know, I, I always have a little file on my desk of stories I want to come back to. Like, okay, I'm going to wait a week on this. I'm going to wait a month on this. I'm going to wait a year on this. And news new stories that were reported that I know there's more to it if I can just give people time. You, know. you talked about um, finding your voice through your characters' voices. So, I mean, there's so many different voices in the story. So how do you balance slash juggle knowing when to throw who in? Yeah, I, cr- I try to make it so each each chapter, each um, section of it had like a main character to follow you through. Mm-hmm. And I think the last section that starts when she goes to the lawyer's office was maybe the best, and it wasn't the one that I wrote. <laughs> it was it was the editor Kelly Benham at the time. She um, she said you're writing this from the perspective of the lawyer. You know, I'm, I'm writing it from her perspective of when this crazy dad in his pajamas comes in dragging his daughter by the hand, and she's like, no, 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 no. At this point in time, we want to see Phoebe's perspective. So let's write, write about the nice lady giving her a blue crayon. Let's write about the nice lady taking her downstairs to draw a picture. And I was like, oh, I hadn't thought about that perspective of, like, Phoebe could be, because both of my main characters were dead. You know, like, I, I couldn't talk to Phoebe, I couldn't talk to John, so I couldn't get in their heads, which is usually what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and as soon as Kelly said, let's turn this around and write it from the perspective of Phoebe, I was like, that's the voice I need, you know. That wasn't me, though, that was her, her genius. <laughs> Yeah, we got um, we got to go out on the the same rescue boat that found her. It sounds terrible to say it, a rescue boat when they were finding a body, but we got to ride on the same boat with the same student crew that found her body that night, and we went at the same time of night. So we were trying really hard to recreate that, um, and that's the the I should say something about the presentation of the story because this was the first time we'd ever did like a super multimedia thing and um, it was because we had this young designer who was 23 years old who just graduated from Northwestern University who sat it on the story meeting and she was like you have the 911 calls you have video of the boat under the bridge you have the sound of the water you've got can I have that and we were like what who are you again like (laughs) she was you know she was brand new and she just she took all of this stuff and made it so interactive where you can click on and hear the 911 calls. You can click on and see the little home video of Phoebe on the swing. You know, it's so much more powerful what she did with it online. And this was because she, she knew how to embed all this stuff. She thought, mm-hmm. let's don't just make it print and pictures, you know. And um, so, yeah, she saw the video that we'd shot going under the bridge, and that became the opening of it. So when you open the top of it, it just is the, the water's moving. You can see a little boat, a boat like a little buoy going by. And uh, that was totally the designer being like, Give me everything you guys got, and I'll make it wonderful. And she even invented this thing. It was this story was long. The story, um, 
obviously you guys read it, you know it was long. I, I wrote 20,000 words for this story, and they cut it down to 10. So they cut it completely in half. So if any of you guys are getting your stories chopped, yes, this is still a thing. After you've won a Pulitzer Prize and done this for 30 years, they will still cut your story in half. So um, it was down to 10,000 words. But I was worried that as you, you know when you scroll down, especially on your phone, and that little bar keeps going and going and <laughs> yes. going, I'm like, no one is going to want to read this whole story because it's so daunting, you know. Yeah. So the designer split it into three parts, so you only have one-third of it at a time to see the bar. And she invented this little thingy that I hope she makes a million dollars for, where it, you can click it and it goes back to where you left off. Mm. And, like, if you stop reading in the middle of it, it'll send you an email and go, hey, this is where you left off. <gasps> that was genius. Like, I was like, you can do that? She goes, I don't know. And she starts, like, searching, and she's like, yeah, we can do that. So that was a really interesting part of the, the presentation of it, too, you know. Could I ask one question? Uh, there was I'm fascinated by that one sentence where you said he eased her into the into the car seat, and then of course there's the odd he's strapping in this girl he's going to go kill. But how did you know that he eased her into the car seat? And how did you know that he strapped her into the? Uh, how do you know that he strapped her in? You know those in the very beginning. How did you find that kind of stuff out? The policeman who watched her at the top of the bridge saw him unbuckling her. Uh, so I knew she was buckled in. Wow. Yeah. We had a great interview with him because he was, like, traumatized that he'd seen this whole thing happen, you know. And See, I think that's fascinating that you have, like, you don't attribute stuff, but if you're, if you're, if you're called on it, you can attribute. You know what I mean? That, well, that's part of voice, too, I think, like, having the authority to, to be able to not have to attribute mm -hmm. everything. Um, I think that helps make your voice sound so much stronger. You know, and also having an editor who believes in you enough to be able to ask that question, mm -hmm. how did you know this, but then not make you say that, you know. Because yes. if, if I'd stopped it to say the policeman said, right. you, it would have been like, that, it would have ruined my narrative, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, uh, no, no, sure, go. To, to that point, uh, do you have like an editor's note saying how the story was recorded? Yeah. Yeah, we worked on that for a while. And in fact, I wrote a really, really long editor's note and they cut it down. But yeah, I, I mean, I think, I don't know if you guys do that. I think a lot of these times when, when I know that I'm going to have readers who want to know, how did you know that? Where did you get that? How do I believe you? It helps a lot to, to explain that in a little box. Yeah. I always start with the weather. I mean, you can get the weather for whatever. I mean, you can go back 200 years and find out what, what, how fast the wind was blowing through downtown Athens on this day. I mean, I always, if I want to set a scene, go to the weather, the historical part of it, and see, was it a starry night? Was the moon out? You know, what, what did that look like? I was kind of fixated on starting with him scooping her out of bed because as a parent, like, that's the last thing you want to do is wake your sleeping five-year-old, you know, like, in the middle of the night. So, like, I kind of thought, like, I, I really need to explode this scene, you know. And his dad and his stepmom were both there, and they wouldn't talk to me. So I didn't have anything that could have helped me report that. We, we went to the house. We kind of, like, sat in the car and, like, reported around the outside of the house of what mm -hmm. it looked like and what the trees were like and where the driveway was. And, um left notes on their door again and again and again, you know. Um, 
But the police reports, too, the police reports had a lot of the stuff about um, what time it was, you know, when they left and whether they were asleep or not when it happened. And um, so that all those things together sort of pieced together that scene, you know. I'm always looking for those, like, extra layers of how I can bring more detail to make it kind of come alive. We'll do one more question before moving on. Can, can I just say something? I want to pass around the, the uh, edition of the, the paper so you can look at it. I want it back. So <laughs> <laughs> you see what it looks like. Uh, yeah, we, we went back and forth about whether that should be three different days. Should we run it on three different days or should we run it in one big section? And they ended up giving us a whole section. which was kind of incredible. You, you can go. Uh, you had said that your story was 20,000 words, and then it got chopped in half. What were the other 10,000 words? <laughs> there, were, there were four other single moms who all got killed on the cutting room floor. <laughs> that was probably a good two or 3,000 words because I was following her to each house. I wanted to, like, walk you through each of her houses. That was a big chunk that got cut out. Um, there was a lot more about the grandma. Like, I went back another generation because this wasn't just John messed up Phoebe. John's mom messed up John, and John's mom's parents messed her up, you know, and so I kind of want to show this, like, gener intergenerational uh, dysfunction in the family. Um, and, in fact, I think one of the, I don't know, when you guys are as old as I am, you're going to have these, like, scenes I never got to say, you know, <laughs> like, my, one of my favorite scenes, and I'll never forget this <coughs> little story. You have to bear with me for a second because you won't forget this either if I tell you this. The grandmother, I finally got the grandmother to go with her brother and got the two of them together in a room to talk about their childhood. We talked about John Chuck mostly, but then I started asking them about their childhood. And they kind of look at each other. And you know how when you get, you're like, you know people are like having this little inside connection and you're on to something, but they're not going to show you right away, you know? Mm -hmm. So the grandmother tells us, I said, I always ask people this question. It's a great first question. What's your first memory? What's your earliest memory you have? And that sort of sets the scene for a lot of people about what's the first thing they remember. Um, and when I asked that question, the grandmother and her, her brother like started looking at each other and like shaking their heads. And I'm like, okay, bring it on. It looks like it's the same memory for you guys. What was it? And she tells the story when she was three years old and her brother was one and a half. Her mother put them in the car, drove him in the middle of the night in, in the black dark, put him in a stroller on a corner in front of her father's, or her grandfather's butcher shop, okay? So downtown Tampa in a crappy neighborhood, this young mother takes a three-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old out, puts them in a stroller, parks them on the sidewalk, and drives away. And they talked about remembering the taillights of mom and dad's car, or mom's car, driving away into this black morning, and the three-year-old sitting there with her little brother not knowing what to do. So her first memory is this abandonment. I mean, isn't that an amazing scene? If you think about a movie that starts with two little kids being left on a sidewalk in the dark watching their mom's taillights go away. I love that scene, and I had to cut that whole damn generation out of it because there just wasn't enough room at the end of it, you know. But I, I, I felt like that was so poignant and visual, and I didn't want to give that up. Okay. If you have a question for Lane about any of her stories or would like to suggest a podcast topic, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at TampaBay.com. Join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next episode. This podcast was produced by Denise Keenan. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.